background, remember last week we said from uh, Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, Now if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all people, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words you are to say to the Israelites. That was preparing them for what comes next. Uh, that was that was God saying, now if you keep the words that I speak, and then in, in chapter 20, he's going to speak some of those words. And so I'll read to you uh, from chapter 20. Then God spoke all these words. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens, or above or on the earth, below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children of the fathers, uh, uh, children for the father's iniquity to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You order labor for six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock, or the resident alien who is within your city gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them in six days, then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. Uh, honor your father and your mother so that you may have a long life in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony against your neighbor, do not covenant, covet your neighbor's house, do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So, Last week we talked about how, how God gives standards. Essentially he sets up a covenant with them and says, hey, if you, you keep this covenant, if you follow these, these, uh, these standards, if, you're, if you will follow my standards, then you are, are going to be my, my people, my own possession uh, set apart. And then we talked about how, how if you read the whole of the Old Testament and you follow the, the narrative arc of the Old Testament, they never at any point follow the, the commands that he, he gives to them. These right here, which I'm going to alternatively, alternately call uh, the law or, or the commands. We come to what's called the Ten Commandments uh, this morning. They are essentially a laying out or, or a summary form of what God's going to give them when he says, if you will f- listen to what I say, and then he's going to tell them what he says. And so he gives them in, in summary form uh, what we might call the law or what here is called called the Ten Commandments. And so... Um, we need to then do a little bit of a little bit of work, a little bit of theological work to talk about what the law is and how the commands function. The law is an interesting one. In in fact, uh, ways to look at the at the the law and how the law functions in in the life of of Israel and how the, the law functions in the life of the believer is at times. Uh, um, I don't want to say controversial, but it's debated. So uh, there is not uniformity in, in how this this is this is viewed, uh, and so we're going to talk about what what we think is is the best uh, interpretation and best application of this passage. 
I think ultimately the application of the passage is independent from the very from from the specifics of, of some of the things we talk about when we talk about the law, which is to say that the principles of scripture are clear even when when how we view things aren't. So um, just to talk then about uh, about the law it, it, itself, um, God gives the law some uh, 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 the law is is more than the than the Ten Commandments, but I would suggest, and I agree with uh, with people who say that the law are the the Ten Commandments are a summary of of the law that that God gives. So that when God says, "If you will listen to me," it means everything that He says. But He gives the Ten Commandments, and they function as a, as a summary of, of the law that that He gives. There is at, at times when people talk about the law, and this is a theological point. Hopefully helpful for, for Bible study uh, and elsewhere. There's some people, when we talk about the law, that we would divide it into three parts. Well, there's the ceremonial law, there's the, uh, there's the civil law, and then there's the moral law. And so uh, in, in chapter 20, what you would have, if you accept those designations, is the moral law of God uh, in the, the ceremonial uh, 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 the ceremonial law would be uh, laws like how to do sacrifice and those those sorts of things. The ceremonial law, the the civil law, would be laws about how the nation functions. Because remember, they're they're they are going to be for a while a nomadic people before they're settled in the land. Eventually, they'll be settled in a land. Even when they're there, they have they have rulers, they have kings. There's there's civil law laws that govern uh, their country. And so sometimes when people talk about the the law, they're going to divide that into three parts: the civil. Uh, the ceremony and the moral, I would simply say about that is that the designation is interesting in this, that if any of the law came from God, and it did, in fact, all of the law came, came from God, that the civil and, and the ceremonial law, if the, the children of Israel were to violate those in any way because they came from God, that would be a transgression, and so all law is moral by its nature, Right, so if you are a, a a a child of Israel and you don't follow the 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 civil law as you should, or if you don't follow the ceremonial law as you should, because they came from God, that is a moral transgression. So all of which say I don't, and and there'll be a reason uh, going forward why I don't think that I personally. Would, would separate the law into those things, except for as a helpful way to do Bible study. I think it's very helpful in doing Bible study. I don't know if it's, um, uh, if they're, they're designations that God means to, means to have. The reason why they make those designations is because of this debate. What is the enduring nature of the law? And we're going to use the Ten Commandments as the summary then. What is the enduring nature of the value of the Ten Commandments in the life of a believer in the New Testament? That's the question that they're, they're trying to answer. And so we know that, that we are not under the civil law of, of the nation of Israel because we don't live in that nation. We don't have the same thing. We don't live community. We know we're not under that. We know that because Jesus came and because Jesus died uh, on the cross, because Hebrews tells us that he's the perfect sacrifice, because it tells us all the scripture that, that he dies once for all, we also know that we don't do sacrifices. We don't go into the, into the temple. We don't, uh, we don't select, uh, remember, uh, uh, during the, the Easter season, Passover season, we talked about
about lamb selection day. We don't go select a lamb. We don't go get a lamb and get our lamb and send it into there. So we know that we're not under the ceremonial law. And so the question then is, is that there's this thing that seems to, that, that some would say is of a, of a different character. What is our relationship in, as a New Testament or a New Covenant people to the moral law of, of Moses? And so that's the question we're, we're, we're trying to, to answer here uh, uh, this morning. That said, let me just point out some uh, 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 this reality is this, is that in the year 2018, if you're anywhere close to my age, and that, by that I mean, you know, like 10 years below and any older, uh, you have lived through one of the most tumultuous times in American church history. So I was born into what you might call Christendom. Christendom doesn't just mean Christianity. Christendom is Christianity plus power. And so the culture that I was born into was, was a culture and a political system, an American governmental system, where Christendom ruled. In other words, the, the rules and the laws of Christianity, and in this case, I mean, uh, I mean our moral, civil, so all kinds of Christian laws, were, had power in the general public and in, in the general society. In fact, that's why we would routinely refer to our nation as a Judeo Christian nation. It's a Judeo-Christian. It's based upon, upon biblical law. It's based upon biblical case law. Um, when people talked about um, when when people talked about God in our culture, in the culture I was born into, when people talked about God, they knew which God you were speaking of. We could use just the word God, and they they would associate that with with in some senses with Christianity and the in the Christian God. That's the culture I was born into. It's actually the culture looking at the age most of you were born into, and yet since the the, the early two thousands and especially into our own time, we have seen a rapid evaporation of Christendom. We've seen a rapid evaporation of the political clout and the political power of our country uh, of Christian influence. In fact, uh, a lot of what you're seeing going on in our political schema today is probably a, re- a reaction to a lot of people's fear of the loss of, of, of Christendom. So so there, there's this fight politically, but what has happened is that the people in, in this country, the, the, the country itself is rapidly de-churching. So the culture that I was born into, and the culture even in the early days that I church plant plant into was a culture where people had a background or a knowledge of the, of, of the church, a background or a knowledge of, of, of Christian things, whether they were in the church or not. And so the role of a, of a church planter a lot of times was to go out and call people back to the church and call people back to God. And so we called those people de-churched. They had a background in the church. They had a family in the church, but, they, but the church over time ceased to have uh, meaning in their lives. So they left the church and you go call them back. That's why uh, in the, the 80s, especially starting in 81 with Willow Creek and, and churches like that, you have um, you start to see advertisements and things like that say uh, church like you've never seen it before. Uh, church where you can dress casual. We are we are influenced by that. I'm preaching to you in uh, in, in jeans. This morning, so we certainly are influenced by some of that what we're on in, in in the church. But what happened is that is that in up until probably 
uh, 2000 or so, the majority of people in America were, were either churched or de-churched. That's your majority categories. And yet, since 2000, the last 18 years, it was one of the most amazingly rapid accelerations of, of what what I would, could only call the fall of Christendom, the breakdown of Christendom, and the breakdown uh, of, of this idea of a, of a Christian nation or a Christian ethos, even the Judeo-Christian background, because what we're finding is that we are rapidly moving to becoming a post-Christian nation, and that has happened very, very fast. So I say all of that to say is that we now live in a time that if you go out into the neighborhood, depending on what community you go into, but into a lot of our communities, if you say you need to come back to church, they're going to quibble with the word back to. They've never been to church. And that might be a couple generations. Even in, in our urban communities, our urban African-American communities, we go say you need to come back to church. It used to be that the young man might not have been to, to, to church, but grandma had been to church. And so they had some institutional knowledge of what, what the church was. We now live in a time, especially with, with, with rapid immigration, with, um, with honestly the breakdown of the church's global witness, some of our behavior, all of this has resulted in what is, uh, is currently uh, a, a post-Christian nation. And I, I, I expect the acceleration of post-Christendom. All of that to say this is that you're, you're living through that. But when I was a, a child, because people were predominantly and majority churched, the Ten Commandments uh, played a huge role in, in the life of, of anyone you taught. And so it would not be uncommon for you to be out, uh, uh, out sharing the good news with someone. It would not be uncommon for you to be out uh, trying to do gospel work or, or however you want to call it. It wouldn't be uncommon for if you were to say to a person, and to use kind of the, the language we would have used, I mean, how do you know that if you died tonight you'd go to heaven? It wouldn't be uncommon for a person to say, well, I keep the commandments or I'm a good person. That would be a very common response that, that, that you, would, you would hear. Uh, well, I'm a, I'm a good person. I keep the commandments. And so it would not be uncommon in, out, outside the church, outside the church for a person to say, oh, I, I keep those. So some people outside the church use, would use the Ten Commandments in the law in general but, uh, as, as a scale. Well, I keep the Ten Commandments, so I'm good. I'm going to heaven. Inside the church, it was not uncommon um, in the kinds of churches that a lot of us grew up in, meaning Baptistic churches influenced by dispensational theology, for there to be a particular, a very specific confusion about the role of the Ten Commandments. So it wouldn't be impossible for you in the, the church I grew up in, in the youth, to go to, to a child and say, how are people in the Old Testament saved? And they might say, well, people in the Old Testament were saved by law. People in the New Testament are saved by grace. The reason for, for that has to do with stuff we don't have time to get into. But I've definitely heard that enunciated because there's, it's difficult to, to work through. And so... So knowing the, these two things, that the role uh, of the Ten Commandments in, in our, our public witness, a lot of people go, well, I follow the Ten Commandments. I follow those commandments I'm in. Knowing uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, in the church, the theological people, people, how are people in the Old Testament saying, well, they're saved through the law or the keeping of the commandments. We're saved by grace. Um, 
Both of those things are, are problematic, and I'll just mention one more that we'll deal with in a minute. So now we live in post-Christendom, and sometimes I see this, this fight that's, that actually takes place with, with people from inside the church thinking about how are we going to live in a society that, that seems increasingly disconnected from the values, from the teachings of, of Scripture, from, from our, our, our way of living, increasingly post-Christian. How are we going to rescue the nation back from post-Christendom? With that group, I sometimes see groups of people from a Christian background who believe, I think, that the answer is to post the Ten Commandments. And so uh, we've had arguments in this country. We've had judges in this, this country uh, 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 Judges who would claim uh, to, to be believers say that they need to post the Ten Commandments behind them. And I've heard um, certain people who do things like culture war. In other words, we need to get our culture back. And the way we're going to rescue it is to, is to post the, the Ten Commandments. We need to get the Ten Commandments out there. People see the Ten Commandments, uh, see, see the law. And so we'll deal with those uh, in turn. So the question then before us is, is what, do, what do we do with the, the Ten Commandments? And so I want to, uh, to talk about those first two just really, really quickly. So uh, some people in the past have said, well, I follow the, the commandments. Okay, remember page back in, in your Bible or on a different screen, I guess. In chapter 19, he, he says to them, uh, in, in verse 5, if you'll carefully listen to me and keep my covenant. We know that the, the children of Israel don't, don't keep the covenant. In fact, that's, that's the pages of the New Testament, story after story after story of them not keeping the, the new covenant. In fact, the first command that he's going to give them is, is this. Then God spoke these words, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have any gods besides me. Then he's going to tell them, do not make an idol for yourself uh, in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Literally, while Moses is receiving these commands at one point from God, the Israelites are, are, are uh, Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the, <laughs> receiving the commands from God. The Israelites are, are down the mountain building their own God out of a metal, right? And so even as the commands are being given, they're breaking them, right? And we talked about how again and again and again, the, the Israelites continually are looking for a different God to, to worship. Uh, they're continually looking for someone else uh, to worship, or they're continually looking to worship God in a way different than they've been told to worship him. It's a huge problem amongst them. It's, it's ironic that even as they're, as they're being given, there's a restatement of this in, in chapter 30. Moses is on, up the mountain receiving the commands. They're at the bottom of the mountain breaking the commands. That's what they do. And, and it's, it's just... Um, it's a type that keeps going again and again and again and again. All throughout, all throughout the, the Old Testament, God gives the commands. The Israelites break the commands. God gives the commands. The Israelites break the commands. They do it again and again and, and again. The, 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 the first one is, you will have no gods before me. And that is, the, that is the beginning place, kind of the summary point of all of the commands, right? Don't have any other gods. I'm the God who has the right to give you commands. I'm the God who has the right to lay out what the covenant is. I'm the God who has the right to lay out the standard. Don't 
don't have any other gods. And that's the first one that they regularly uh, and continually break. We talked about, I believe it was last week, maybe not, but I gave to you the Tim Keller via John Calvin quote that says, the human heart is an idol factory. We make new idols constantly, right? That's what the children of Israel did. God says to them, if you will listen carefully and keep my covenants, then he lays out the standards of the covenant. Here's, here's, the, here's the, 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 um, the standards or the, 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 um, the guidelines of the, of the covenant. Here, here they are. Don't have any gods beside me. They break that like right away and they break it continually. It's like you don't even need to go to the rest of them. As I said, we don't have time to go through them all this morning, but I was talking this morning. If you start with the first one, you will have no gods beside me. You end at the last one. Do not covet. The, the problem is, is if you just have those two, it's you and I have never met a human who has not broken those. Right? And so the children of Israel do not follow these. So, so you, going in this order, the idea that the children of Israel could be saved through the keeping of, of the covenant or the children of Israel could be saved through the keeping of the, of the law is, for one, not supported by the narrative of, of the Old Testament. Right? It's not you read the Old Testament. They don't. It's also not supported by the reality of, of humankind because we all know, truthfully, that when he says, you shall have no gods before me, that we, we've seen the story. They, they broke that. But we also know that it's endemic to human nature, right? You know and I know that we have a tendency to want to do what we want to do. We have a tendency to want what we want. I was saying uh, this morning, I don't know what your God is, but I say a lot of times, think about what your favorite thing is, and that's probably your God, right? And those gods can, can switch. They switch. I told you the story before. Uh, my guitar is not up here, but, but I, I, I one time in my life, one time in my life, uh, uh, made a purchase that my wife told me not to make, which, by the way, not it's not this message, guys, but don't do that, okay? But one time I did it because I became obsessed with this guitar. I went into a guitar store, and this guitar was so beautiful. It was just a beautiful, beautiful guitar, and I wanted it, uh, but the guitar was very expensive, and we were very not the type of people who could afford expensive things at that point. So uh, I said, I want this. And my wife said, no. And I said, I want it. And, I, uh, and my wife said, no, we can't afford it. I said, I want it. <laughs> she said, no, we can't afford it. So I really, really want it. She said, fine. Guys, fine does not mean fine. Right? When, when, when you push far enough that you get fine, that is not fine. Right? It is anything but. And so uh, I went ahead and bought it and brought it home. And here's the interesting thing about the guitar from the wall to the home is that somehow when you get it into the home and you bring it into, into the place and you bring it into the place where you've used it to cause relational disunity, relational breakdown, all that kind of stuff, you bring it home, it's not near as pretty as you thought it was. There's something about it on the wall, right? It's so beautiful on the wall, but when you get it home, it's not that beautiful. And I think that was, that was probably... 20 years ago. Now, I still have the guitar. I don't sell the guitar. I keep it as a monument. <laughs> it's a monument to that moment where I did something relationally 
stupid, in, in something that broke relationship that was foolish because I had to have it. Now, what's the motivating factor? The, 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 my point there is not even going to be about, about all the damage that can do to the relationship between myself and my wife, although, although it certainly uh, did for a moment do that. My point is this. Why did I have to have it? Right? It was on the wall. What did I need? It just called to me. It kept saying, buy me, buy me, buy me, buy me, buy me. And it got louder and louder and louder and louder. Guys, I'll be honest with you. If you've ever seen the movie Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and I hope you have, but if not, Rob's really going to vibe with this, this example. Okay? So, so here's the thing about Bill and Ted. Bill and Ted want to be in the greatest band ever. They want to be in the greatest band ever, uh, uh, the Wild Stallions. They're, go they're going to be great. The whole first movie is about time, tra time travel and their desire to be the greatest band ever. The most fun part, at the very end of that, they realize that they need to go back in time, that their problem with becoming the greatest band ever is that they need to go back in time and actually learn to play instruments. Because they're about creating the whole greatest band ever, but they never really learned to play instruments. They had guitars that were pretty, they did all this, but they didn't do that. And I, I will be honest with you, because of time travel, I'm still a little bit like, like uh, uh, Bill S. Preston in, in, in this, is that I've never really learned to play my instrument, Right? Like, I can strum that. I can do stuff like I can play Backstreet Boys songs or anything in the key of G on my, on my guitar. Uh, you sometimes do it for fun. But it sort of lives at the church, and it gets played when a string gets broken. But I had to have it. Why? Because the god of the guitar spoke to me from the wall and said, buy me, buy me, buy me, buy me. And what I do, I bought it, and I brought it home. And then I realized, well, you're just not as pretty at home as you are on the wall. Why? Because false gods are liars. But here's the thing. I'm not, I don't think that the guitar was even the false god. The guitar was simply, simply the, the symbol of the false god. The false god was not the guitar on the wall. The false god was the man in the mirror. Right? It was me. What I want is what I want is what I want is what I want. And if I want it, I got to have it. And if I got to have it, I'm going to get it. And when I get it, it's going to be so great. And what we typically find is that when we get the things that our false gods told us we wanted and needed, when we get them, they fail to satisfy. But that's another message too. Right? But here's the point. We know, we know that we are habitual and Israel was a habitual violator of the first commandment. You will have no other gods besides me. Israel broke that all the time. Here's the problem. God said, you can be, you can be, uh, here, here's my covenant. If you keep my covenant, if you listen and keep my covenant, if you carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all peoples, although the whole earth is mine. And you'll be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. That's what he said in chapter 19. He lays out the, 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 the standards or the conditions of the covenant in, in verse 20. And the first one, they break. They break it while they're getting it. They break it again and again. They break it again and they break it again and again. The last one, if you just skip to the last one, it's do not covet, right? Covetousness is, 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 <laughs> is the first sin that we see clearly in, in, um, in a child, right? So, 
sometimes I'll be talking about sin. I'm like, we're born sinners. And people are like, my baby's not a sinner. And I'm always like, you're only saying that because your baby's not three yet. Right? Because when your baby turns three, you know your baby's a sinner. Right? But isn't covetousness the one, like, that's the one we see real early and really obvious. Uh, the, the saying is to a three-year-old, well, my toy is mine. Your toy is mine. All toys are mine. Right? Have you ever watched uh, a, a three-year-old playing with, with a toy, uh, and then they're enjoying that toy, but then they look over and see somebody else playing with a different toy, and they've just got to have it? They've got to have that toy. Even better is when they're playing with the toy, and there's a toy in the middle of the floor over there that nobody's playing with, and then someone touches that toy. Then the three-year-old's got to have that toy because someone touched it, right? Covetousness is, is the... Um, <laughs> is the calling card of the human heart. We all desire and want other things. And I use three-year-olds, but I'll be honest with you, you're not that much different. See, I don't think that the, the nature of sin in us changes all that much as we get older. It just gets more sophisticated and it looks different, right? Right? That's why you're jealous of the person who got the promotion that you didn't get. It's why you're jealous of the person's house that, that you didn't get. It's why you've got to have, have that boat because Billy got that, that boat. It, it's why you need a new motorcycle or whatever you need. It, it's why... Um, Honestly, it's why sometimes things like, like affairs happen because there is a longing and a jealousy for somebody else's relationship, something else. All I'm saying is, is that covetousness we see so early in the life of a child. But it exists in the same way in the life of an adult. It's just more sophisticated. We, we do it differently. I took the first one and the last one, simply said we don't have time to work through the middle one, but I want to make this point to you. The idea that Israel could be saved by keeping the law would be accurate had Israel ever and at any point kept the law. All right? But they didn't. In fact, that was the whole point of our message last week, right? That they don't. When God says to them, if you will listen carefully and keep my covenants, if you will do it, then you, you will be this. He gives them, the, he gives them the, 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 the covenant. He gives them the covenant promise. He gives them the covenant of blessing. Here's the blessing to the covenant. Now he's going to give them the conditions of the covenant. And the real, reality is they never and no point keep the conditions of the covenant. Therefore, Israel cannot be saved through this. And so that idea that the way that the law functioned in the Old Testament was salvific, and what Jesus did is that he came along and there was a new way of, 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 of salvation uh, uh, for, for new covenant people, meaning that different than, than like the law. There was something apart from Jesus that could save, I'm trying to say. That idea has to be false in the life of, of Israel. Israel breaks the covenant. They can't keep the covenant. But then what I've said to you is this routinely, is that if we look at Israel, if we look at Israel and we view Israel as a physical picture of the reality of what God wants to do in all of history, in other words, if you look at Israel and you look at them as their example and you see them again and again and again, God's telling the story of redemptive history through Israel again and again. He's telling you a story about you through, through the nations, right? Through the nation of Israel. So Israel was not saved by keeping the law. By the same token, those people who, who said to us, well, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good, so I'll be okay. I'm pretty good, so I'll be saved. They need to be directed to the same place. If in, by that they mean, well, I keep the commandments, which I've actually heard people say, well, I keep, I keep the commandments. 
The answer to all of those people is a resounding, no, you don't. No, you don't. Nobody has. Nobody does. Nobody can. Right? Because of the brokenness of sin, because sins entered the, the universe, the same way that Israel breaks the first commandment, so do you. The same way that Israel breaks the last commandment, so do you. The same way that Israel broke every commandment between the first and the last one, so do you. And here's the thing. We know from the New Testament, the teaching of the New Testament, that a person who transgresses even one tiny little bit of the law is guilty of transgressing all of the law. They're going to be held responsible for this. So therefore, they're under condemnation. So a person could not ever be saved through the keeping of these commandments. So I'm saying that to make this, this theological point. Israel wasn't saved through keeping the commandments. They could have kept the commandments perfectly, they could have been, but they couldn't. Nobody you know is saved through the keeping of the commandments because they can't keep them. What then is the function of, of the commandments? How do, why are the commandments given and then how do, how do we use them? Here's, here's my, my, my suggestion, my my, uh, my belief is that the reason that God gives these commandments is to make a very important point to Israel and secondarily and a very important point to all who would come after Israel. And the point is this. If you are depending upon yourself and your own ability to save yourself, you are going to die apart from God. These commandments... Hey, God says, hey, just keep the commandments and, and you'll be okay. Keep the commandments. And then he says the first one, I'm the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods besides me. And we break that constantly, right? Here's my belief in the life of Israel and my belief in your life. If, if we could convince ourselves that we were command keepers, if we could convince ourselves that we could just do it, if we could convince ourselves that we could just be good enough, we would never, ever, ever move beyond anything, right? Because if you can convince yourself that you're keeping the commandments, leaving aside that, leaving aside that the first one is have no other gods besides me, you could keep the commandments if you can convince yourself and be your own God still, which is what you actually want. And so the first one, have no other gods besides me, leads into the second one. And the reality is, is that all of us desire to be our own gods. We break the first one and it flows from all of those. But God needed to make this point because he knows that our heart desires and he knows that our heart wants and he knows that people everywhere will desire to be their own gods, to be in charge of their own life. He makes this point. You can't keep the commandments. Here's the standard. Fine, if you can keep the standard perfectly, you don't need me. But we can't, and we don't, and Israel didn't. So what does the law become? The law becomes like, 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 a, like a harsh master driving us towards something else. Every time the law, we say, I can do it. I'm good enough. I'm measuring up. I'm keeping commandments. The law shows up and says, no, you don't. No, you don't. Every time we think that we're okay, every time we think that we measure up, every time we think that we're good enough, the law shows up and says, no, you aren't. 
And so the law is pushing us towards something else. The law appears so that we have to look at ourselves realistically. The law functions, uh, functions as a corrective to our mirrors. When we look into the mirror, we see our own God. But then if we look into the mirror again and see our God judged by the standard of the law, we realize that we are not law keepers. We don't keep them. We're law breakers. And that is... That is the bad news that precedes the good news. And we sometimes need to hear the bad news. And so, as I said to the congregation at Godfrey Lee, the bad news this morning is, like Israel, you are bad people. Like Israel, I am a bad person. You know, I've talked about this before, but when the kids were little, we used to talk about the narrative of Scripture. And I'd say to one of them, are there good guys and bad guys in the Bible? They'd say, no, Daddy. There's bad guys and there's Jesus. I think and submit to you again that that is the right understanding of Scripture. There's bad guys in the narrative of Scripture, and there's Jesus as to to their natural state. And so the law functions for Israel to say to them, you don't measure up. The law functions for us to say, you don't measure up. Here's the thing. If you think that you're measuring up, if you think that you're doing okay, if you think that everything's cool, why would you ever look for anything else? Israel needs to know that they don't measure up. The reason they need to know that they don't measure up is because they need to be driven to the one who does. The reason we need to hear that we don't measure up is because we need to be driven to the one who does. And so the bad news this morning is this. You're not good enough. If you're like, I'm pretty good, I'm okay, I don't need to get too Jesus-y, I don't need to get too much, I don't do that much bad stuff, you need to hear this simply. If you've ever looked across from someone from you and said, I really want what they have. You have transgressed the law and broken all of it, and you are under condemnation based upon it if you think that the law can save you. If you've ever wanted something so, something so bad that you just went and got it, and you knew that it was a horrible decision, You've made that thing God of your life. You've broken the first commandment. And if you've broken the first commandment, you've broken every bit of the command and every bit of the law. And you are under condemnation if you think that the law can save you. All the law can do is declare that you're dead. It goes through, we could go through the rest of them, through the rest of them, through the rest of them, through the rest of them. And at each point, I could probably demonstrate ways in which you and I have broken every single one of the commandments. Israel certainly did. You and I certainly do. We're command breakers. And so if, I, if we had time, we'd go through and we'd demonstrate that we are command breakers. We've broken every command. And the re- reason the law is given is not to say to you, follow the law and you'll be saved. The reason the law is given to you is to say this. You do not meet the standard and you are destined for destruction if you think that the law can save you. The law could not save Israel. It cannot save you. Let's go back for a minute to the guys who are like, but we need to fix America. 
And the way we're going to fix America is we're going to get the Ten Commandments on the wall behind the judge. And we're going to make the country live according to the Ten Commandments. And if the country would just live according to the Ten Commandments, then everything would be okay. And everything would be better. And we're going to win this nation back. We're going to do this. I want to say to you this. If God, in giving the Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel, could not, did not save Israel through the keeping of the commandments, there is very little hope that judges in America, in putting the commandments on the wall are going to save America uh, through the very same commands that Israel could not and did not keep. So then, when you post the Ten Commandments behind a person, or when you have the Ten Commandments in your life, if you are trying to come to God via these commandments, you need to know that they are not your salvation. They are the declaration of your death, of your separation, and your condemnation. You do not keep these commandments. You do not keep any commandment, you are a command breaker under condemnation. And so what does the law do? The law convinces us and the law says to us, you are a man or a woman under condemnation. You are not a good guy in the story. You are not a good girl in the story. You are a bad guy. You are the villain. You are the enemy. You are the rebel. You are the one who deserves destruction. You are the one who deserves to be wiped out. You are the one who deserves to be condemned. That's what the Ten Commandments do apart from what we talked about last week. So if we can't keep the commandments and we can't keep the covenants, what hope is there? Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. In that the law's requirement would, in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The law of Moses, the function of the law of Moses, and the law of Moses is functioning in life can only do one thing. It can declare condemnation. I believe, I'll go back to just what we talked about uh, uh, at the beginning. Uh, I, I don't personally uh, ascribe to the idea of a separation between a civil, a ceremony, and a moral law. I think all of those are the law. When the law is given, if you break the law, you have morally transgressed it. To the whom the law is given, the law is always moral. So then, what do we do with the law of, of Moses and how does it function in our life? I'm going to suggest to you something that is, that is, that is maybe um, minorly debated and then we'll, we'll apply and the application will be the same from Scripture either way. I would suggest to you that not only is the, is the civil law fulfilled in Christ and done away with, not only is the civil law uh, uh, fulfilled in Christ and, and done away with, but the moral law is fulfilled in Christ and, and done away with. Um, which is to say that all of the law in the coming of Christ, um, done away with is probably the wrong terminology there because we do not want to, um, to denigrate the good law of Christ. The law is good in as much as it does what it functions to do, but Christ in the life of the believer is the fulfillment of every bit of, of, of the law. 
Uh, and so, uh, so this is, if, if you want to be a, a theology geek, if you read people like Doug Moo and other people like that who make this point, I would simply suggest that, that my personal thought process on this is that all of the law is fulfilled in Christ uh, so that it, it answers an important question for uh, us about about the enduring nature of it. What, what do we do with it? Other people would say, no, that the... Um, that the law of Moses endures with a third use, which is to help Christians know how to behave once they have met, met Jesus. Um, I think that's an acceptable interpretation, but I would suggest that, that the necessity for that interpretation is not there because um, in Christ, uh, in, in the New Testament, that which is a part of the, the, the law of Christ is, is restated. But anyways, so... To me, the, the law of Moses culminates in Christ. At which point in the new covenant there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the law, this is a confusing passage. In, in chapter 2, it, or verse 2, it uses the word law. It means principle there. Uh, so it should read like this. Therefore, there's no now condemnation in Christ Jesus because the... the uh, uh, Sorry, that, that should be law. Uh, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free uh, from, the, uh, f- from the principle of sin and death. What the law could not do, that means the law is in, in the, the covenant. Uh, uh, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering, right? Ceremonial law. Christ comes, fulfills the moral law. He comes as a sacrifice in the in in the, in the civil law, in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us, right? Inasmuch as we are in Jesus, we talked about last week how Jesus is both the, the recipient of the promises and, and, and the fulfiller of the promises, and then he is also the one who, who gives out the blessings of the promises inasmuch as we are, we are in him. So in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So here's, here's the idea that, that I'm trying to get with. Here's what we, well, theologically kind of across, across the board, at least in, um, in most camps agree with, is that, is that the, the, the law of Moses was never salvific, right? And it wasn't intended to be. Like the law of Moses could, could bring salvation if a person could... could could obey it perfectly, but they never do. So the law of Moses could never save. It didn't save in Israel, and it can't save you now. So uh, to put that into sort of contemporary terms, like your good works can't save you. Like the good stuff you think you're doing, the stuff can't save you. The law of Moses was not salvific even for Israel. But rather the law served this purpose. It was given so that in its time, it's given to restrain the behaviors, to restrain evil. So it's given to restrain evil in as much as they imperfectly follow the law, especially your, 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 your laws about how they live as a nation. It's given to restrain evil and protect people, but it can never save. The other thing that it does is that in knowing that they do not measure up to the law, it forces the people to look for something else, look for a different savior. And so that's the function of the law in Israel. It becomes the function of the law in our life. If we look into the law and we're like, I'm just going to be good, I'm going to try hard, I'm okay, I'm what we discover is that we are lawbreakers, and as lawbreakers, we're under condemnation. But... 
to realize you're under condemnation is the, is, is the bad news that precedes the good news. Because in realizing that you're under condemnation, it causes you to look for a way out of condemnation. And, and the problem is, is that most of us, when we're in that trouble, we look inside and we look at ourselves and we try and work it out. But the law tells us again and again and again, you don't measure up. And so the law functions largely like, like, like the death orders for people who want to live according to it and as a declaration of our condemnation. But, but, there is one who did come, who followed the law perfectly, never broke any of it, dotted every I, crossed every T, kept every, 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 every little condition of the law perfectly came in the flesh, died in the flesh, rose in the flesh, so that he could condemn sin in the flesh. So that in fulfilling all of the law, he could give to us, he could take all of our condemnation, he could take the death warrant for us, he could take the charges written against us, and he, and, and he could... He could inspire these words to be written. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So, so, what do, what do we do with it? Here's, here's, here, here's what I would like you to do, and I think this is consistent with the New Testament. I would like you to look and understand that you do not measure up and cannot measure up to the law is rubbed in. I'd like you to view yourself as a lawbreaker. I'd like you to take a few minutes and understand yourself as the bad guy in the narrative. I'd like you to take a few moments and understand that if you think that you're going to make it to God by living according to the law, your self-righteousness and your confidence in yourself is going to destroy you, that the law is simply a death warrant because of sin in us. And I want you to understand also then that that is the bad news that precedes this good news. Jesus Christ came in the flesh to earth. He kept the covenant perfectly. He kept the law perfectly. He met every condition perfectly. He did not sin, nor was there a shadow of any sin in him. There's not a bit of him who transgressed any bit of the law. He kept all of the law perfectly. And as such, he fulfilled all of the law perfectly. They put him to death as a lawbreaker. But when they put him to death, they crucified him as a lawbreaker because he was a law keeper, because he was a covenant keeper, because he was God in the flesh, in his flesh. He condemned the, 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 the accusations and the charges against us. So that instead of being thought of instead of identifying as, instead of thinking yourself as a bad guy, if you're in Christ, or a bad girl, if you're in Christ, you get to think of yourself as a saint. 
You get to think of yourself as a set-apart one. You get to think of yourself as holy. You get to think of yourself as righteous. You get to think of yourself as all of these things. Why? Because Jesus on your behalf has kept the law. Jesus on your, on your behalf has, has fulfilled the covenant. Jesus on your behalf has taken your condemnation upon him and given his righteousness to you so that there is no condemnation. So you get to live now in the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that sets you free from sin and death. What the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. And what I want you to do is to live in a daily reality of that sentence. God did. If you live in the reality of that sentence, it changes everything. It tells you what he's done. It tells you what he's done for you. And it frees you up to live in the reality of the spirit of the living God. God did. Pray with me.